Let me invite you to open your Bibles again to Luke chapter 15. We're looking at part two of this very famous parable of what's called the parable of the prodigal son. But really we're focusing tonight on the main character of the parable, which is the father. Last week, uh, we talked about what it meant to be lost. And to be lost means that we're sinners. And that we're dead in our sins. But to be found means that God causes us by His Holy Spirit to be made alive. So we see the the good news there. But this is, as it were, even brighter uh, 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 showing that Jesus is doing of the love of the Father. We're really centering here on looking at his love for us. And I think this is, uh, Lord willing, going to startle all of us. So Luke chapter 15, I'm going to start reading verses 1 through 3, and then I'm going to skip down to verse 17. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. So Jesus actually would tell two parables, and now this is going to be the third one. About midway through this third parable, the younger son, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me. As one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. Now here it is. But while he was still a long way off. His father saw him. And felt compassion. And ran. And embraced him. And kissed him. And the son said to the father. Father I sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, if we're honest, this is the hardest thing in the world to believe. We're asking that you would give us what we don't naturally have in ourselves and that you would give us faith. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, you preached this to real people in real time, and it was difficult for them to believe. But for those who were born again, they saw something that was eternally worthy. God, there is no one like you. No one loves us like you love us. Would you give us the hearts to embrace it? Give us the eyes to see it. Give us the ears to hear it. Give us the hands to respond to it. We're asking that whatever we bring in here tonight, especially the things that we try to hide from you and others, that you would meet us in that very place and show us what it means to be saved. 
We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Two churches ago when I interned for a good friend of mine named Kurt Cooper, he was a uh, a PCA minister in the great city of Montgomery, Alabama. What up? And uh, Kurt used to play this kind of funny game with us who would intern with him and you would listen to anything in any conversation or what you saw on TV. And if someone said something that was just the exact opposite of the gospel, what you would say, you'd try to be the first person you say, now that's the gospel. So it'd be saying such as this, you know, well, you get out what you put in. Now that's the gospel. It's clearly not. And so you're trying to spot the exact opposite. There'd be phrases like that, phrases like this. Change starts with you. Or how about, shout out to Hannah Montana, thanks to Lauren Carlton, life is what you make of it, so let's make it rock. Now that is the gospel, according to that game. Now it's a joke, and y'all have actually maybe heard me say that, putting the emphasis on this, that the gospel is not about you doing stuff. It's about what God has done for you. The gospel puts the emphasis on God. And how he moves towards us. But what Satan loves to do, and what he's been doing throughout his entire existence, he's always trying to get us to say that Jesus is good, but you also need this. You also need to do this. Or you need to also put the emphasis on this. Jesus is good, but he's not enough. But the whole point of this parable is for you to hear Jesus say, no, no, no. This really is the gospel, not all this other stuff you hear out there. We looked at last week how the younger son ran off and he squandered his property. And Jesus is intentionally painting a picture of someone who literally, literally, they would be the worst sinner at Oklahoma State. That when you thought about what a sinner was, when you thought about what sin was, this would be the first guy who came to your mind. Jesus is intentionally trying to argue from the greater to the lesser. He's trying to paint the worst person so that all of us in here, we can know that if we come to Jesus Christ, this is the love we will get. So you want to see it. Here it is. Look at verse 20. So it's when this mud-covered, maybe pig manure just caked to his skin because he was in the pig pen and he's finally coming back. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. What Jesus is trying to tell the Pharisees here is that this is truly the gospel. When it says that, and while he was still a long way off, that's implying that he's either several hundred yards away or maybe even over a mile away. You know, I I remember growing up in Alabama and going deep sea fishing, and whenever you go so far offshore that you could not see the land, if you got seasick, what would be the first thing you would want to see? Land. Your eyes are scanning the horizons, and you just are longing for a prayer so you can just get back on stable land and feel better. The father is scanning the horizons. Ever since his son left, he has never stopped looking for him. Not once. Day after day, he would be known as the father whose son rebelled against him, surely. 
What do you think people's advice would have been to this father? Maybe something like this. Dude, you just need to move on. Just give up on him. Or how about this? You're embarrassing yourself. Isn't this what we do with other people? Other people who go out and do whatever they want on the strip or they do whatever they want in the privacy of their own apartment room and maybe we find out what they're doing and we're tempted to say, well, I just need to move on from them. They're not worth my time because they're not changing. See, I love the picture in the Marvel movies, in the Thor movies of Heimdall, the Watcher. What is his one job? It's to watch. My friends, some of you have been running away from the Lord your entire life, and you know what he's doing. He's looking for you. The father, when he sees his son, he doesn't waste a single second. He acts. He doesn't say this. He doesn't say, well, let me see what he's going to do first. Or he doesn't say this. Well, let me see if he's really, really sorry, and then I'll love him. See, what Satan loves to tempt us to believe is this, is that when we run so far off, when we run so far away from God, he tempts us with these lies. He says, well, God's forgotten about you. He doesn't really care about you anymore. Just look at the circumstances of your life. He's given up on you. He's done with you. Do you think the people of Israel felt that way after 400 years of slavery in Egypt? 400 years. And then at one point they cried out to the Lord and Exodus 2.25 says, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. You are never too far gone. My friends, God sees your pain. He sees your suffering. He sees your loneliness. He sees your depression, your anxiety, your confusion, and your sin. And before you even thought about God, God thought about you. That, my friends, is the gospel. But the father didn't just see his son. How did he respond when he saw him? Look at the next uh, little phrase there. His father saw him and felt compassion. It's actually interesting the word and is used here four times in a row, almost like speeding it up where Jesus is trying to say like we're building up to a climax here. This is amazing stuff. He doesn't just see him, but he also, he felt compassion. This would be a gut feeling saying this, that the father melted within when he saw his sinful son. We don't feel that way whenever someone in our past has done something to harm us or misrepresent us or spread rumors about us that really ruined our standing in our in our friend group and we despise them the moment we see them and when we see them we run away from them but not this father the moment he sees his dirty sinful son he melts with him The Greek word meaning he felt compassion, it is in the passive tense, meaning it happens to him. In other words, it's a natural reaction. It's not this. You know, if I can use Colin for an example. By the way, Colin is my, is my son's best friend, so That's I'm just right. throwing that out there. Um, we all know. Um, everybody knows. Everybody knows. It's not like this. If Colin 
forgive me. If Colin slapped my son, I got you. I know. I know. Yeah. But let's say it happened. It's not as if I would see Colin and I would say, oh, man, now i got to really get my act together. i got to really make sure I love Colin in this moment. That is not the picture of God. We think that that's what God has to do whenever he really sees our sin. But his natural reaction is compassion. Jesus is not faking his compassion towards sinners who come to him. He's not. Dane Ortland says, if you are a Christian, God made you so that he could love you. Amen? Amen. He made you so that he could love you. There's a billboard I saw in Muskogee that said this, imagine being evicted from jail because of who you love. But I don't think that billboard is actually correct because it's not because we love Jesus that we're evicted. It's because he loves us that we're evicted. We would have felt anger and bitterness towards this guy. We would have said, how dare he come back? And that's often why some people are proclaimed atheists is because they see just these horrible things in the world like death and sin and abuse and violence and abandonment and the presence of evil and all these other things. And we can't imagine that there could possibly be someone this good. But that's what Jesus is saying. See, Satan loves to whisper the lie. For those of us who know our sins, he loves to whisper the lie. He says, God hates sin. You are a sinner. Therefore, God hates you. Have y'all felt that before? But another pastor who died many years ago, a guy named Thomas Goodwin says, for the Christian, your very sins, they move him to pity more than to anger. My friends, Why do you feel as if whenever you know your sin that you have to just go on a long enough streak of beating yourself up before you can embrace his love? That is not the picture of this God, amen? He is a God who moves towards us. He feels compassion. That is the gospel. He doesn't just feel compassion, but he runs. In other words, he doesn't just sit back and say, oh, I'm thinking about you. Or, oh, man, I'm going to pray for you, but we never really do. His compassion moves him. His compassion is like when you put Mentos in a Coke and it does something. He gets up and he runs. His compassion does not sit back. It moves towards. And my friends, this is one of the greatest needs in the world today. Because no one's moving towards people. What we do is we sit behind the screen and we make comments and we make passive-aggressive tweets, and we, we promote more division. But the love of the gospel moves towards the least deserving, not those who are deserving, because, by the way, no one is. He moves towards us, and this word for run is a Greek word that is used for competitive races, but that's actually very interesting. It's interesting because, actually, in... Old Jewish literature, it says that a nobleman would have been known by his slow, dignified pace. It was actually very shameful in that culture for a man, especially a man of his status, to run. Aristotle himself says, great men never run in public. One scholar, a modern scholar in the Middle East, even says that 
Uh, there was a church who, by the time he wrote this, there was a church who somewhat recently had rejected a pastor because he walked too fast. It was very shameful, but he runs. You have to ask the question, why is he running? Because the father would rather bring shame on himself than let his son linger in shame one more second. It's kind of like a father who just would never dance ever. But then his daughter gets married and that boy dances because of his love for his daughter. Why does he run? He runs because in Deuteronomy 21, 21, we actually see, it's very interesting, I encourage you to go read it later. In Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21, we see that if a son disrespected his father in such a way as that younger son did, then what they would do is this. As the young son would approach the town, there would be, you know, typically there would be these young kids playing at the city gates. They would spread the rumor that, hey, you know, little Joe's back. Let's just call his name little Joe. Sorry, Joe, wherever you're at. Um, no, you know, I got you. Um, little, little, little Joe's back. And it would spread the rumor. And so they would know this guy has embarrassed their people. They would bring word back to his father. And what they would do is they would gather the town elders and they would stone him right then and there. That's what would happen. Go look it up. Deuteronomy 21. The reason that the father is running is because he knows that it would have been very realistic for these people to have started that ceremony right then and there. But he says, I'm going to beat them there because I'm going to keep him safe. He's not saying this. He's not saying, well, sin is not that big of a deal. But what he's saying is that I long to forgive my son. My friends, do you really believe how much God longs to forgive you when you come to Jesus Christ with all of your sin? Once again, Satan loves to speak lies to us, and he loves to make us think that if we come to Jesus, nothing good will happen. We're never going to have this shame removed from us. Some of you really know that. That our past sins will forever define us. That we've sinned too much. We've run away for too long. We've gone too far. We can't expect to be loved after what we've done. Isn't that why we've promoted a culture of self-love, but also simultaneously, isn't that why we felt more and more empty? Because self-love does not, doesn't do it. My friends, do we move towards notorious sinners? Or do we just give them looks whenever they walk into RUF or the church? You might say, but you don't know what they've done. I know what they're doing on the weekend. My friends, God knows their sin more than you do. God knows their sin more than they know it. And he moves towards How does God run towards us today? It's very true, but I love this saying of what one guy actually saw. I think it was today or yesterday. And it's like the little children's song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the word and sacraments tell me so. How do you know that God loves you? The very fact that you would even be here tonight and the word would be proclaimed to you or when you show up on Sunday morning and it's not just the word that is preached, but the sacraments that are given to you. 
do you want a sign of God's love? The sign is in the sacrament. It's literally what it is. He loves you, my friends. God is more eager to bestow forgiveness upon us than we are eager to believe it. Did you hear me? God is more eager to forgive you of all of your sins than you are eager to believe it. We walk to forgiveness. God runs to forgive. That right there, what Jesus is saying, that right there is the gospel. But the father doesn't just run. What does he do when he actually gets up close and he sees, no doubt, the, the mud and the, and the feces that would be coating his skin from being there for so long and he had turned so far away, he would smell so bad. Because often what we think is this, well, I don't know if God really would feel about me that way if he really knew what I've been looking at on my phone or what I've really been doing with, you know, these guys or girls late at night. Or would he be doing if he just saw how angry I am all the time at these certain people in my life? If he really got up close and saw me, just like other people in my life, I don't think he would continue to move toward. Jesus shows how that's not true. Jesus shows that as he continues to get closer, he embraces him. It literally means he jumped on his neck and it's just like UFC submission, right? Notice that the father does not say this. Oh, dude, go shower up first, then we'll sort this out. Go and fix your past first, and then I'll love you. Now, let's make sure we constantly search out your past, and let's figure out why you did what you did, so that it never, ever happens again, then I'll love you. He doesn't do any of that. He moves Closer, not because he's minimizing sin, but despite your sin, because he knows how to take care of it. I've quoted this many times, but there's one psychiatrist who had said, I could dismiss half of my patients if I could just look them in the eye and give them the assurance that they are really forgiven. Do you want to know why one of the biggest reasons why some of us spiral into very bad seasons of depression and anxiety? It's not the only reason, but it's often... One of the major reasons. It's because we don't believe this. And we, we run the tape over and over and over about what we've done. And what happens is we see moments in our life that we can't take back. And people around us will remember those. And we feel that shame everywhere we walk. And we feel like if I go back home, then, you know... They're going to remember what I've done. And you hope that you would come to college to have a fresh start. And now you've gotten here. And by the way, as you come here, so does your sin because we're sinners. And then you sin. Now you're, you just can't wait to graduate and move on so you can start over. But my friends, you're never going to be able to escape your sin because that's where we go. And it, it crushes us. The answer is to run to Jesus Christ because only he can take away that burden. The father jumps on his neck. He doesn't stop when he sees this, as if almost like he's, as he sees him more and more, he gets closer and runs faster. It's like the unstoppable hug from a grandmother at Thanksgiving. <laughs> My friends, what Jesus is trying to tell you, that no matter what you have done, 
when you bring him everything, don't you dare bring him half of it. You bring him absolutely everything. And man, he's just like what David Hatton would do to me and just like UFC submission. It would just be over. He loves you, my friends. Jesus is saying that's the gospel. The father, he felt compassion. He ran, he embraced him and he kissed him. And in this Greek uh, verb, it means like he repeatedly kissed him and kiss would be a sign of fellowship. It just talks about in the early church how you would kiss one another on the cheek and it'd be called the holy kiss, meaning that you're in the fellowship with them. The father says, look, you and me are good. He doesn't say this. I told you you would eventually mess things up. He doesn't do this. He doesn't say, well, here's what you need to do in order to be restored. He doesn't say this. Well, not until you prove yourself. He doesn't say this. How do we know you just won't do it again? See, this is what we often say to ourselves. And why do I encourage you to check out that booklet by Robert Jones? We often say, well, I can't let myself off the hook that easily. I need to beat myself up more. I'm not worthy of forgiveness. I need to do something to be worthy of his love. But my friends, listen to what Jesus is telling you in this very moment right here. If you come to him, you're never going to be worthy, but he is. And he moves towards you. And he sees the things that cause you the most pain and regret And he says, here I am for you. So one person says, out of his heart flows mercy. Out of ours flows a reluctance to receive it. He is open-armed. We are stiff-armed. Y'all, could you imagine what would happen if these, I don't know, 100, 115 people in this room right now, if we really believed this? Just, just, I mean, if the school's like, what, 26,000? But just imagine that if just merely this group and you just had one person who you interacted with and they knew for a fact you absolutely believed this and wherever you went, the worst off, you said, I'm going to grandma hug you. I'm going to move towards you with the gospel of grace. Could you imagine what a real impact that would be? We love to be loud and we love to be trending and all these different things. But my friends, the thing that actually changes people is to move towards them with grace and mercy. And the reason why people, they continue to want to go and live whatever life they want. They want to continue to go out. They want to continue to sleep around or whatever they want to do because they haven't found rest. And they're longing just to know, even though they might keep up a very good facade and they, they're basically just an imposter. And that's often us in this room. But if they just knew that they could just give it all to Jesus Christ, could you imagine what that would do to them? And you know what? To some of you, it's happened. And you can give testimony to that. See, what's interesting is that actually in this context, you would most likely expect the younger son to want to kiss his father's feet or his hands to pay homage. But the father reverses it. I have this quote in your handout uh, at the bottom of the sermon outline where it's a goodbye guy named J.C. Ryle. And he says this, let it be noted in this text that the father does not say a single word to his son about his sin and wickedness. Not that he doesn't see it. 
But he doesn't say a single word to his son about his sin and wickedness. There is neither rebuke nor reproof for the past, nor galling admonitions for the present, nor that irritating advice for the future. The one idea that is presented here is, as filling his mind is joy that his son has come home. That is why the father wants to celebrate. He does not celebrate the good people just getting a little bit of help. He celebrates the egregious, notorious sinners who come to Jesus and they say, I am dead, please make me alive. That, my friends, is the gospel, amen? No one loves you like the Father. And no one also secures you like the Father. Look at verse 21. And the son said to him, thinking about him just trying to muster up this plan, Father, sin against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but. It's almost as if as soon as the father hears, I am no longer worthy to be called your son, he just says, wait a second, we're stopping this whole thing right there because my friend, did he do anything to make himself worthy to be a son in the first place? Who brought him into the world? The father. He was never worthy. Who brought you into existence? The Father in heaven. And you were never worthy. You see, the problem with the Son here is that He's trying to earn His way back. He's acting as if, you know, kind of like the Monty Python, the Holy Grail quote, I'm not dead yet. My friends, you are dead. Without Jesus Christ, You are dead in your sins. And I know that might sound really bad, but it's true. But it's when you were dead that he makes you alive. Brendan Manning says this, our huffing and puffing to impress God, our our scrambling for brownie points, our thrashing about trying to fix ourselves while hiding our pettiness and wallowing in guilt, it's nauseating to God and a flat denial of the gospel of grace. My friends, Stop trying to fix yourself. Stop trying to act like you have it all together. Stop trying to act like you aren't, as our theme always says, that you're not a sinful person. You are. But you have a perfect Savior. You have a Savior whose grace is greater than your sins. You see, I know it's no fun. But the reason why we preach the bad news is so that the good news is so good. We, we have such itchy ears today just to hear things that will flatter us to say, well, you're doing pretty good here. You're doing pretty good here. And we like that. We like it where we don't really have to think about the negative things. My friends, if you don't know that you're a sinner, you will not understand how amazing the cross is. You want to understand how amazing God's love for you is that no matter how bad you could be, He loves you and He moves towards you. I do not care what you have done. I've talked with numerous teammates, numerous people across the years who have said things that hardly even mentionable. And those are the people who Jesus loves to move towards. The father just can't even take this of him trying to earn his way back. And he's like, no, I'm sorry. Uh, Your time's over. I'm going to talk now. Um, He interrupts him. And the father says to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. It's almost as if the father is saying, 
Son, my heart is too full of compassion for you. It has no more room for your despair or you asking me to treat you differently. I love what Isaiah 65, 24 says, that before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear him. Because God is always the one who initiates. There's one evangelist uh, who tells this story of a man who uh, was really poor at one time of his life. And the man said, I got off at a train depot one day as a tramp. For a year, I had begged on the streets. I was badly in need of food. I touched a man on the shoulder and said, Mr., please give me a dime. As soon as I saw his face, I recognized my aging father. Don't you know me? I asked. And throwing his arms around me, he cried, Oh, my son, I have found you at last. All I have is yours. Isn't that amazing? Because this guy was just asking for 10 cents and the father says, I'll give you everything. Isn't that often what we say? Lord, just give me a little bit of help, but he's ready to give you everything. He tells his servants to bring him quickly the best robe. What does this mean? The robe was something that only the father would have. And wherever he would walk in that society, when he wore that robe, people from hundreds of yards off would say, oh, that's Mr. You know, Little Joe's dad or whatever we would say, right? That's Mr. Smith. Why do we know that? Because he's wearing that same robe. That's him. Why does he want his younger son to wear this robe? Because of this. He wants his son to know that because actually totally despite his sins, you cannot earn your way back. I determine your status. And I mean it. He doesn't clean him up first. He doesn't wash him up and, you know, makes him go take a shower, put Old Spice on, comb your hair, whatever it is, trim your beard. And then we're going to put this on you. No, 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 my friends. He's still caked with dirt and manure. But it's right then and there that he is clothed with that robe. What's Jesus telling you here? Here's what he's telling you. When you come to Jesus Christ with all of your filth and all of your sin, Jesus gives you his robe of righteousness. He gives you his perfect record. He gives you the perfection of his life that you and I can never live. And he clothes you with it. He does not do this. He doesn't scrub you up first and then clothes you. He doesn't infuse it within. It's while you are still a sinner, he puts it on you. That's what we call justification. That now in God's eyes, that when God sees you with the robe of Jesus Christ, he sees you like he sees his son and he treats you like he would treat his son. Is that not amazing? You didn't do anything to deserve it. He gives you the robe. He gives you the family signet ring. This would be the ring that would show everyone that he really is a son in the family. He really is back. He asked for sandals to be put on his feet because it's interesting because there would be the three tiers in, in that culture. There would be the family, there would be the slaves, and then there would be the day laborers. The day laborers would never wear sandals. The slaves would sometimes wear sandals, but the sons would always wear sandals. When he is clothing this guy, what he is saying is this, 
your emotions and your feelings do not determine your reality. The clothes do. My friends, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, your emotions do not determine your reality with God. God does. Amen? And the whole point is this. Is that we would stop being so obsessed with ourselves and constantly running the tape over and over and over. And we're just saying, I can't do enough. But rather that we would look at what we're wearing. And that we would see that in Jesus Christ, we really are who we are. That's why Daryl Harrison and Virgil Walker say, so when a person comes to faith in Christ, not only are their sins forgiven by God, but they are obliterated. They're wiped out. They're erased. They will never be remembered again. The Father loves to celebrate this type of acceptance. It's interesting because earlier the younger son had wished his father was dead and the father essentially lives like it. And then the younger son lives as if he's dead and he leaves the covenant community. There's, there's this big theme in this, in, this, uh, in this parable about death and life. And you notice here that he, the father in verse 23 also asked that the fattened calf would be brought and killed. You would only use the fattened calf for the biggest celebration of the year or just the decade. My friends, do you believe that heaven celebrates when you bring Jesus all of your sins? Because often the way we live is like the older brother that we'll get to next week. And we sit there and we say, mm, I don't think those people should be here at RUF. Mm, I, don't, I don't think those people should be here at church. We should really be here, not them. That's what the Pharisees and the scribes were doing. But you know who Jesus loves to celebrate? He loves to celebrate when the tax collectors and sinners, those sinners, when those people come to him. Because he loves to be gracious. You see, actually the fattened calf is really pointing us to Jesus himself. As Hebrews 9.12 says, Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus Christ, who is the perfect one, he goes to the cross and he takes our place and the Father treats him the way you and I should be treated. He treats him as if he's dead. He treats him as if he's the sinner. He treats him as if he's the one who's unclean. He treats him based on what you and I have done. And for all of his people across all time, it's as if he microwaved all that upon Jesus in a matter of six hours on the cross. Because on that cross, Jesus took your hell so that he could give you his heaven. And it's because of Jesus Christ that anyone who comes to him with anything, mercy, grace, cleansing, righteousness, acceptance, restoration, redemption, you name it. You get him. My friends, is this not worth telling people? Amen? This is the greatest news that's out there that God loves you. I love what Horatius Bonner says, that God pointing to the cross says, that is enough for me. And what do we do by faith? 
we also point at the cross and we say, it's enough for me too. My friends, have you said that the cross and nothing but the cross is enough for you? As Joe Ferrone spent Labor Day with his family one year, his thoughts inevitably turned to his son, Tony. Joe, who is the dad, (laughs) contrary to what I was saying earlier about little Joe, Joe, who's the dad, he didn't know whether his son, Tony, was alive or dead. All he hoped for was that his son might come back home. Late that night, they got a phone call at their house, and it was his son, Tony. And when Joe spoke to him, it was immediately evident that his son was in a bad condition. He'd been on drugs for a while, and it had brought him down a dark path. Tony had called his father from a Holiday Inn more than 100 miles away. Immediately, the family jumped in the car and went to find him. When the Pharaohs saw their lost son, they could hardly recognize him. He seemed more dead than alive. His greasy hair was hanging across his face. His ragged clothes were covered with filthy vomit. His shoes were worn all the way through. Their prodigal son was so weak and confused that his parents had to carry him to the car. It's a true story. As they drove home, the smell was unbearable. The father said to himself, I've heard so many sermons about the prodigal son in the stinking pig pen. And now here I am holding my own nose and living out that very scene. But then he said this, my son. I love him because he is my son. He has come back home. That is all that matters now. The only thing that matters for you tonight is that you come home. Is that you run to Jesus with all of your sins and you say, Jesus, right here, right now, take me. And he does. That, my friends, is the gospel. And when you believe that, you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we're asking that you would lead us to your son. Lead us to him who alone can wash us from the filth He alone who can raise us from death to life. He alone who can make us sons of God. Father, there are lost people here tonight and there are those who have been trying to run away from you. Help us to see how loving you are that we would come to Jesus Christ and that we would receive the robes of righteousness. Do it tonight. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.